0: As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour with stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, mind, body, spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called Extremely Frightening and Upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network.
1: From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun size edition of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And asking your questions is producer Joe Russo, Joe... I was going to ask how you are, but I think you're a little under the weather today.
2: I am under the weather today, but because we love our post uh here I am. We're doing we're doing the AMA right before you leave for England.
1: That's um, right, jolly yeah. old
2: England, and jolly old. Uh, and what are you doing in England, Mick? What what should they be? Uh keeping their eyes and ears out for
1: well i blush as i tell you that i'm the guest of honor at ChillerCon 2022 and uh i will be joined by kim newman and grady hendrix among other uh estimable folks there uh in scarborough uk so it should be a lot of fun that sounds like a lot of fun uh
2: yes no i i it, it appears that um i've had a bout of food poisoning and ironically we were just talking this is the second time i've had to host a postmortem under the the auspices of food poisoning because the <laughs> first time the first time was my first ever appearance on the show uh which was for critters too when i when i interviewed and you, you were moderating and it yeah i was moderating for you and lynchay and and the kyoto brothers and uh Whew, here we are. But uh, the good news is that that instance, we weren't going to be able to edit this
1: instance, we could. So uh, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> just in yeah, case. I mean, it, well, fortunately, In-N-Out Burgers is not a sponsor. So <laughs> no, but, but you were just
2: telling me, though, because uh, we, we think In-N-Out is the likely culprit, uh, which is really sad,
1: because I do really like In-N-Out. But uh, uh, you, you uh, did a jingle for them once. I did a singing commercial for them back in the seventies. Huh. It was a ripoff of the who song squeeze box. And it was stand up and shout for in and out and in and out and in and out burgers. There so was know. this like, was this related to horse feathers or was this like, yes. A yes, it was related to horse feathers in that our keyboard player worked for the commercial production company that um, they were a client for. And so the guy, hired, uh, who owned the company, hired us to do the singing commercial.
2: There you go. Who would have thought? Nick Garris is part of the history of In-N-Out.
1: So yes. Southern uh- California's own Chain That's right. Of That's Burgers great. that I wouldn't eat in a million years now. Uh,
2: not anymore, but they do have uh they do have the the grilled cheese, which is, you know, which is what my uh, wife
1: It's makes. dairy. It's dairy. I don't oh, do fair, I don't fair. do animal products.
2: That's so. right. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. Uh well, you're well, I'm not going to say you're missing out cuz I uh clearly am in a lot of pain. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mick. Uh
1: we better so burn through, through these. dive into some questions then. Yes. Let's do it. Get All it right. get it over for poor joe
2: yes all right well this is uh this is a fresh one that just came in today and i know you're gonna love it when i ask it Uh Lori wants to know why won't
1: you watch top gun (laughs) well i it is just entirely outside of my realm of interest uh you know it it was produced at a time that it was very jingoistic and pro reagan's america which is something that i really had a problem with and still do to this day and uh you know i'm 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 patriotic but not in that sense you know but Uh, i do
2: have a question because like
1: you're a big tom cruise fan right you're like Uh, i think he's very talented Yeah.
2: yes uh so i mean i would say maybe at just some point you should consider it because it is much more of a drama than it is just a rah-rah action movie.
1: I understand um, that, but everything it represents to me is something I that's anathema to me. And I I know that it's a movie that I'm not interested in seeing. Just well, fair phone enough,
2: phone. but uh, you're missing you're missing a good one. Uh, so all right. I let you watch it so I don't have to. Fair enough. <laughs> so I guess you're not gonna be in line for the sequel. Uh, all right. Christer writes. Between Needful Things, Storm of the Century, and Randall Flagg in the Stand, Stephen King taps into the unknown threats, the omnipotent stranger as catalyst for major upheaval, representing the worst of us. How do you think King's view on life, or possible afterlife, reflect through these stories and characters?
1: Well, I can't speak for Stephen King, obviously, but you know, n- nobody is more dangerous or mysterious than the unknown. Uh, and a character who represents the unknown, uh, certainly is important. But King is a believer. he He's not a born-again Christian, but he is a Christian. And those biblical, he knows the Bible very well. And it's also a part of being in AA, is a belief in a higher power. It's certainly a part of his life. So all of the parables told within those stories, particularly in the stand, have uh, antecedents in biblical stories. And so I think um, the afterlife is very much a part of those beliefs. So again, I don't share those beliefs particularly, but, uh, and I can't speak for Stephen King, but I can't speak for having taken a position, a creative position on translating the, those works to film. And uh, so that would be my interpretation of, of his approach.
2: When, uh, when, when, when you do have to adapt something where you don't necessarily share the same uh, religious or socio-political beliefs as the the author of the book being adapted. I mean, how do you how do you position that yourself? Like, do you do you try and and uh, open up that the the empathy to understand where they're coming from? How do you how do you get into that mode?
1: Yeah, I'm a storyteller and I'm an author as well, um, a screenwriter as well, and I don't believe in ghosts, but I certainly tell ghost stories all the time and you put yourself in a situation with any fictional story of what if this is true what if this happens and they're always fictional but they always have to feel genuine so you ground those characters and those beliefs and those ideas in something that's very earthbound to, to make it feel real and to share an empathy with every character's point of view, rather than easily delineating good versus evil, you want to depict all the shades of gray of all the characters. And so you do become a believer from the point of view of a story being told. Uh, there are some that I don't want to be a believer in in that point of view and you know have turned down some things that philosophically I was not, uh, interested in portraying
2: there you have it uh speaking of the stand uh i got a a question from my writing partner chris
1: oh chris yeah
2: yeah and uh he wants to know uh the don't fear the reaper opening to the stand is one of the most memorable sequences i can think of how did you conceive it how much of it was in the script and how long did it take to shoot
1: Um, first of all, thank you. Uh, there was a lot of work put into it. The song was put in, it was in the script. Uh, and just the idea that we travel down the corridors of this underground facility, military facility, um, as it plays in the background, and that was about it. And then, it was really just plotting out each of the steps of that, and taking the Steadicam and using that as a tool that gives you a a drifty, almost dreamlike quality, which we further emphasized by shooting in high speed so it would play back in slow motion. So there was a very dreamlike ghostly quality to the deaths that were laid out for us one after another and decided to make it the credit sequence and ex- extend it to to be able to carry the weight of all of the credits. and it, it timed out, really nicely and and it was such a perfect musical choice that it made the song into a hit single all over again
2: yeah yeah no it is it is uh iconic for sure uh and 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 as is uh my writing partner finally making an appearance on postmortem uh <laughs> yay, <Chris Lamont.
1: laughs> yay Chris Lamont.
2: all right Woody Woodpickle, writes. <laughs> oh, another Woody Woodpickle. That's right. He's, he's, a, he's He is a, a good fan. He's a good post-mortimer. All Becoming right. a regular. Yeah. That's right. I saw an old interview you did with Harlan Ellison on YouTube. Yeah. Both of your personalities couldn't be further apart, uh, which made <laughs> me wonder, how did you guys get along off air? Bonus question for you and Joe. What Harlan story would you want to adapt?
1: Um. You know, we got along really well. Harlan was a very cynical guy and he told bullshit stories all the time as if they were true. Uh, But, um, you know, he was so smart and so entertaining. You'd never want to get into an argument with Harlan Ellison because he would shred you to pieces uh, and take great delight in doing it. But Harlan was one of a kind. And You know, he hated the term sci-fi, even though a a lot of his career was science fiction that he'd written. Right. But, um, you know, there were uh, he was a brilliant guy and a very entertaining guy. And, you know, I know Josh Olson and he are very were very close before he passed. But Arlen was a great guest. And, yeah, we had very different styles. Um, He could take you or leave you. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's not how I operate my life, but, but no, he, we got along great. We were friends.
2: That's great. That's good to hear. So, so even off camera, even if it might've been combative on camera, off camera,
1: it was, uh, it was you well, know? he was combative off camera as well, Not true. but All that right, was sure, part of his enough. personality. Absolutely.
2: Uh, uh, yeah. Well, what about, uh, is there any of his works that, that ever, you know, tickled your fancy, do you think?
1: Well, I, I loved a lot of his works, but a lot of them were too short to really adapt into uh, a full-length film. I mean, right. A Boy and His Dog was done beautifully, Yeah. Uh, uh, but... Mostly, you know, that was Bloods a Rover was was the associated story. Yeah. Um, but I love the collection, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. That might be my favorite collection of his works, other than his essays that he wrote for the L.A. Weekly. But... um but uh, yeah, I'd never thought of adapting any of his works because so many, of, like Richard Christian Matheson writes really short stories right. um, as well as the occasional novel. But Harlan's works were, were very self-contained and very internal. Um, and uh, so uh, I know that there was one of them adapted for uh, S- Masters of Science Fiction, uh, adapted by Josh Olson um but uh, i wasn't really involved in that uh, right series that was stolen from my series
2: <laughs> so. yeah we've we've touched on that before i yeah. i think for me if i was going to touch anything of of his work uh it would be trying to remake a boy and his dog i've always loved that movie and uh yeah you know i i i as you know i'm a big dog person so uh you and me
1: both yeah yep, can relate
2: can relate on a lot of levels with that one um yeah. Avery wants to know, what do you do if you feel doubt in a project or your directing abilities?
1: Um, you get over it. You know, oh. if, if you don't feel up to it, then maybe it's not the job for you. Um, but the thing is, if you are a director, you need the confidence to convince everybody around you that your vision is worth expressing. And, you know, um, you need confidence and strength to be able to pull together a cast and crew and make something meaningful out of that. Um, the doubting comes has to come well before pre-production.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, uh, and if you are doubting, I don't know, see a therapist or <laughs> change jobs yeah. um, because it requires confidence, um, not blind confidence but maybe it's the material you're feeling doubts about. But if you're feeling personal doubts about your work, then it's time to look inside and see why am I doubting this? What am I afraid of? Is, what am I not good enough at? And then put some, some thought into how to improve that. Is it cinema, cinematographically? Is it that you're not sure how to express something through camera? then work with a great cinematographer who understands you. Is it a ca- dealing with cast? That's something that's really important to be able to convey and communicate with cast. And every level of filmmaking is based on communication. And as the director, you have to be seen as knowledgeable and confident in your vision. Right. Because if people can talk you out of your vision, then what are you doing there? Yeah.
2: No, I, I I agree. There's a, there's a really great um, podcast. Uh, I, I hate to refer people to other podcasts, but, but
1: hey, I'm that, happy to. Yeah, yeah.
2: Happy to uh, called uh, script notes with John August and Craig Mason. And um, I mean, maybe a little bit more applicable to writing, but uh, there was an episode in their vault uh, and they've, they've read it a couple of times uh, where they brought on a uh, therapist to talk about uh, creatives going to therapy and the benefits of therapy and uh, kind of working through those doubts and, and basically trying to normalize it um, and uh, it's a really great lesson uh, and I would I would definitely recommend that uh, Avery go and, and seek it out uh, I think it's in their back catalog so it might cost like five dollars for the month or something like that but but really great uh episode and and this is like this guy is like the hollywood creative therapist he was he was a screenwriter himself uh and then he decided oh yeah yeah he
1: used to write for the writers guild magazine every issue
2: yes yes you know who i'm talking about i wish
1: i knew dennis dennis i forget his last name
2: yeah um but but worth worth uh checking out um i think i think you know there's a lot Dennis palumbo yes that is it yeah
1: dennis palumbo
2: yes so uh so anyway, check out that interview with him. It's terrific. Uh, you know. And if, if those doubts are you know, continuing to creep beyond that, maybe even uh, schedule an appointment. Uh, sometimes it can help to uh, chat with creatives directly. But I think, I think makes advice sound. Um, kind of staying on that train of thought, uh, s.m.reviews asks, while in production, how do you handle it when a scene doesn't go as planned?
1: they often don't go as planned (laughs) for for a number of reasons whether it's weather or an actor having a different take that wasn't what you discussed or um special effects not being ready or appropriate or whatever you roll with the punches and often it will come out better than what you'd planned um but i know you're talking about when things go wrong and you just have to make the most of it. Maybe you can do it over. Uh, I'll give you an example. When we were shooting The Stand, there's a very, very touching scene where um, Mother Abigail is uh, about to leave her home for the last time with the group. And all of her belongings are roped into an old pickup truck. And Ruby D who was a fantastic, fantastic actress, one of the, one of the goddesses of theater, television, and, and film. We're doing the rehearsal, and I can see it's giving it all. And I, she's giving everything to it. There are tears. And I said, please, save it for the take. Save it for the take. But she was such a committed actress that even in the run-through, she was giving it her all. Yeah. And the tears were pouring, and it was... Heartrending and fantastic but by the time i called action for the first take she'd used it up the tears were dry she wasn't there and she knew it yeah and because it was a hundred day shoot there were a couple of things where we had to roll with the punches and and i said look this isn't working i know ruby she she knew it she said "Ah, it's not working i'm so sorry i'm so sorry i said we're going to come back and do it tomorrow. And we filled the day with other work that we could do that we weren't planning for that day. Um, And then we did it again and it was fantastic. It was everything that she had given to the rehearsal the day before, but she had a day to reboot and it worked out well. So you have to try to make lemonade out of lemons.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and honestly, that's that's a great example of the dangers of uh, of rehearsals. Sometimes,
1: you know. Yeah, rehearsal can be your best friend or your worst enemy.
2: Yeah. Yep. I agree. I mean, there's definitely there's a, there's a, a lot of people who are split on that. I believe like Spielberg. Uh, he never rehearses. Never rehearses. Yeah, he wants to get get that authenticity. Um, and I th- Ridley Scott is very much the same. Uh, and then there's other directors who rehearse it and rehearse it and rehearse it and rehearse it. You know.
1: I remember going to a DGA panel of all the uh, uh, nominated directors for the Directors Guild Awards years ago, and uh, it was Spielberg and Cameron and James L. Brooks and I forget who else. And Spielberg was talking about not giving his actors rehearsal and direction beforehand. And James L. Brooks was just watching aghast because he said, what's the director's job then? <laughs> because he could not imagine such a thing, but just different filmmakers work in different ways to achieve their goals.
2: Um, absolutely. And that, that, is, that, is the, uh, that is the trick about directing is there's really no one way to do it. And our final question for today is from Ryan, who asks, What's the origin story of the Postmortem podcast? A lot of us longtime listeners can piece together bits and pieces, uh, but I'd be curious to hear about its inception.
1: Well, the very beginning of Postmortem was as a television show for FearNet. Um, Peter Block had uh, come to me and talked about the idea of doing. This interview series for FearNet, which he was the program director for while he was still at Lionsgate. And so we did 10 interviews, television interviews under the title Postmortem. And it included Carpenter and Hooper and Wes Craven and and, uh, William Friedkin and Rick Baker. And, you know, we we had 10 of the great names in our genre. Uh, and that's all it ever was going to be. And then Fearnet kind of disappeared, um, it, it went under. And when you, Joe, uh, met with your friend who worked at uh, Podcast One and pitched the idea of it, when we had our meeting with uh, with the Mucky Mucks there, um, they loved using the title because it was an existing title that already had some familiarity. And even though it was a few years later, um we decided to, to use that and run with it.
2: Yeah, yeah, we, we dug it back up. It was uh it was it, 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 it's you know, it was funny. It was um right in the middle of us uh selling and and getting ready to uh start prepping nightmare cinema. Yeah, and I just happened to have a uh, an encounter with a guy at a party who worked at podcast one, and you know, I, I on a lark said, you know. Uh, the producer I'm partnered with on this anthology used to do a uh, interview series. And um, yeah, it was, it it happened really fast. I mean, that was probably in the, in the fall. And then our first episodes were recorded, you know, that following January and released, I think, I think that following February. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: And now Um, here we are in year six.
2: Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And still going strong, even, uh, (laughs) Even when I'm uh, sick, so.
1: (laughs) That's right. Speaking of which, I think we'd better wrap it up so you can uh, get some time off here.
2: Yes, I will do it. Uh, Have a a lovely trip across the pond.
1: Uh, Thank you. And thank you to everyone for your questions and just for being listeners and supporting the show. Joe, tell them how they can ask their questions.
2: You can send future questions for Ask Mick Anythings to Mick at Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram, or uh, you can send them to me at Joe Russo tweets and at Joe Russo Graham on Twitter and Instagram, respectively.
1: Thanks a lot, Joe. Feel better. Thanks, Mick. Thank you for listening to post-mortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.